This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 69 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some worrying feedback on growing hunger in South Africa's townships, but solid suggestions on how collaboration can overcome these unprecedented challenges. We'll hear from a hospital in Alberton where doctors and members of the community show their gratitude by forming a guard of honour when nursing staff change shifts. We'll have some tips for you from the way that businesses which are successfully adapting to the mass disruption are doing so, and rational questions from the tourism sector, which is urging the South African government to drop irrational rules on domestic travel. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's new infections of the coronavirus fell for the sixth successive day on Tuesday, and at 4,456 are the lowest since the surge started seven weeks ago. That was on June the 23rd. This decline has pushed South Africa out of the global top 10 on new daily infections for the first time since it entered the unwanted list in June. The decline in new infections dropped South Africa's active COVID-19 cases below 150,000, a number that's now a third of the total infections, with over 360,000 people having recovered. The lagging reporting of mortalities, however, has kept South Africa in the global spotlight, with Tuesday's 345 recorded deaths, the fourth highest of any country, only lagging Brazil, the USA and India. On total deaths, however, South Africa's low mortality ratio ensures a modest 17th spot in the global rankings, with 8,884 having died. Well, it's a very warm welcome to Mark Lubner uh, of Africa Tikkun. How long has Africa Tikkun been going for? Africa Tikkun has been in operation now for 25 years. We celebrated our 25th year. Um, started originally by my late father, Bertie, um, and the then chief rabbi, also now unfortunately late, Chief Rabbi Harris. The concept really was to try and say, could we consolidate the efforts of the Jewish community working in township environments? problem, unfortunately, is you know every Jewish charity is run by somebody who themselves want to be captain of the ship. So that didn't work particularly well, consolidating the efforts of all the various communal initiatives. And uh, Tikkun started originally uh, with a variety of different projects, helping elderly people rebuild homes in Alex, a feeding scheme in Orange Farm and the likes. I've been with Tikkun now 16 years. I joined anticipating that I would be here for a year or two, three at the most kind of story, just bringing in some sort of professional management structures and stuff. And I fell in love with the spirit of youth in our townships, which I'm still in love with, quite frankly, today. I'm in awe of young people living in township environments and their desire not to be recipients of social grants, but in fact to get career paths for themselves. 
Over the years, we developed uh, two other entities, one called Africa Deacon Services, which focuses on skills, training, work experience programs, learnerships, and operates um, as an enterprise development firm. And the other is Africa Deacon Investments, which is a private equity black economic empowerment investor using the dividend stream to help fund the charity. The three components, as it were, three entities, all form an initiative called Cradle to Career. So our development arm, the charity arm, looks after the development of children from the age of about two to the age of about 19. The African services business takes kids from the age of about 20 into 25 years of age. And then the private equity arm looks to take up stakes in companies where not only do we look for a dividend out of those businesses to fund the charity, but to influence those companies to employ from this pool that we have developed. So we're offering an economic benefit that is very tangible, not just a black economic empowerment tick box exercise. And during COVID-19, the demand on your resources must have rocketed. We are at our heart a child and youth development organization. Our end game plan is to get kids into career paths, okay? That's pretty much what we do all day, every day. That's our motive for getting up every morning. We have about 20,000 children and youth that come to our centers every day, many of them receiving anywhere between two and four meals during the course of the day. And this has you know, been ongoing. We, we, we make over 1.8 million meals, in fact, in the course of a year, uh, using veggie gardens and uh, industrial kitchens. But now we could no longer feed these kids because they were not able to come to our centres. So we had the two responsibilities. One, we had to carry on with their education. So we moved pretty much in the space of three weeks, four weeks on online um, and found various ways to provide support uh, of, of an educational nature. And then we had to feed these kids. But bear in mind, these kids go, go back home, 20,000, and go back to their shack environments uh, with families. They're also in lockdown. So uh, we had to expand our feeding initiatives. We did so looking after about 70,000 families with a month's supply of food by working through existing community structures. And this is really important. There were so many goodwill initiatives that I saw arise all over me, but then none of them is not, no disrespect meant. Many of them are not sustainable. By working through the existing structures that were in place before COVID struck, we empowered those structures and, in fact, helped them to strengthen their ties within the local community, ensuring that the right food went to the right individuals who were most desperately in need. And we prevented things like resale of food products. Uh, we presented, prevented double dipping and, and issues like that. So it's still a massive challenge, this whole issue of food security. We are working with the Minister of Social Development on more sustainable programs, growing programs. We're running a number of soup kitchens and are learning how soup kitchens can potentially be run commercially and trying to find ways to look at this issue of food security, but with a degree of urgency, absolutely, and not just necessarily to depend on handouts. The, the Solly Croc initiative, the Keep the Wolf from the Door initiative, was really designed to offer an emergency relief support, but at the same time also to start looking at more long-term sustainable partnerships with organizations like Siakana who do grow vegetables to scale. Uh, within township environments. The Solly Croc story is interesting. Just unpack that a little for us, how it all came together and indeed why he came to partner with Africa Tikkun. Solly Croc turned 91. 
spoke to Adrian Gore from Discovery, and Adrian challenged him to walk 91 kilometers to celebrate his birthday for a man who had never been to gym and not done any exercise. Um, and so Solly undertook the challenge, and Solly's an imitable um, character. So he determined that he would walk, walk not only 91 kilometers, in fact, he walked 100, but that he would do so such that he could ask people to support through funding the Food Security Initiative with Africa Tikkun and an organization, Sia Kana Mike Rudolph, who, as I mentioned, is involved in growing programs. Sully then went and contacted his networks globally uh, to raise as his target uh, 101 million rand. To date, he's raised a couple of million, and we've got a number of really interesting initiatives, such as asking Discovery members, the 500,000 Vitality members, and many of them accumulate rewards, which they don't necessarily cash in. I'm prime candidate. And if we were uh, given a prompt to cash those rewards in, you can do the numbers. 200,000 Vitality members each cashed in 100 rand, or that's 20 million rand. And by taking that money, Africa Tikkun is then able to go to the Minister of Social Development and say, would you match in some manner where government would say fund the setting up of soup kitchens, would pay the wages for soup kitchen uh, practitioners, um, and we would help then fund the food supplies. So it is a campaign that we're right in the midst of at the moment. We're hoping to expand to other organizations that run award programs where members can participate. The one thing we can do, you see, the government can't, and many corporates respectfully equally can't, we can deliver Alec that last mile. Because we are resident in these township communities, our sites are all in the communities, our 600-odd staff, our employees from are, are employed from within the community, we, we really are able to uh, distribute food wisely to those who are most in need. Um, and that's a very important component to all of this. And what's it like in the townships that you visit? Alec Tuff. Um, I drove through Alex Township uh, two weeks ago, and I'm usually, as I have 16 odd years, I'm in one or other of our community centres in the townships, various townships we're involved in, at least once a month. Two weeks ago, I went into Alex Township, and I had to take a detour through the, inverted commas, poor side of Alex. I've never experienced kids running up to the car door before and knocking on the window begging for food. I watched elderly people climbing on garbage heaps that were the size of you know, two-story houses practically, looking for scraps. I've never seen that before. So there is a growing, I believe, sense of desperation. When a community doesn't know what the future holds, it becomes relatively unstable. And I, I anticipate there are going to be a, a lot more um, you know, service delivery and food rights, quite frankly, which is very, very unsettling. I don't want to create, sound like I'm being overly dramatic, but you can't ask people to be contained in these overpopulated environments in many instances like Alex or Dipslet and uh, not be concerned about uh, where they're going to go to to actually feed themselves. There are no mass feeding schemes, uh, certainly not like they were at the start of covid uh, to the same degree, not to the same degree. I mean, there's still a number of organizations like Tikkun that are, in fact, continuing to feed, but not in the numbers that we were able to previously. And I have real concerns. So what's your suggestion? Collaboration. 
We really can, by the way, this country has first and foremost enough funds available, and we might, we've all been whacked really, really hard. I appreciate with the lockdown and, and a number of initiatives, quite frankly, I just don't understand the taxes that have been lost that could have been spent on food security, for argument's sake, uh, by allowing at least regulated liquor sales. I just don't, just don't get it. I mean, Taxes would have paid for uh, more than uh, enough hospital beds, quite frankly, to be made and ventilators to be fabricated. But be that as it may, my sense is that if government is prepared to work with civil society and civil society can co-opt corporate sectors to work in collaboration, because I think that there's huge trust deficits between the corporate sector and government at the moment, and civil society can help bridge that. My sense is we can make a material difference. We really can move the needle. Um, corporates have got to stop doing their own thing. Nine and a half billion rand of CSI spend alone before enterprise development. But of that nine and a half billion of CSI spend, over five and a half billion is spent by corporates on their own in-house programs. Let that money flow to civil society who work on the ground. Let civil society be empowered by government who aren't able to run projects on the ground the way civil society can. If the parties can get around the table, my belief is we really can make a material difference. And very quickly, you know, corporate input for arguments like on how to be more creative and how to be more entrepreneurial, government then backing on those entrepreneurial initiatives and uh, civil society filling in the gaps. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, there have been some wonderful initiatives during this COVID-19 pandemic. And Dr. Audrey Cook has been involved in one of the most heartwarming that I've seen. Audrey, just tell us a bit about yourself. Where exactly are you working? I'm a specialist physician in the Netcare, Alberton Union and Clinton Hospitals. And, you know, this COVID pandemic has really hit all the hospitals hard. I saw the video clip, the doctors lining up outside the hospital. So the idea was, first of all, it was not just doctors, but the community at large to invite people to come. And some of these have been patients. Some have had family members that have been in hospital. Then there were our general practitioners supported it. Our physiotherapists, OTs came, psychologists, psychiatrists. So what we did was just at the shift change of the day and night staff in the morning, and then in the night day staff in the evening is to just stand and give them a guard of honor and to just clap hands for them and say, you are our heroes, you are champions, and thank you very much for your service and your sacrifice. So that was really the idea behind it. And really the doctors and community came to the party, as they say, and were fantastic. But the heroes and the champions here are the nursing staff. If you look at some of the situations in the township areas, the nursing staff, because they're wearing a uniform, they've obviously stand out and they've sometimes been almost rejected because maybe you can give us COVID, that kind of attitude. Audrey, just to put it in perspective, when COVID struck, I was talking with the Discovery Life team last week and they said two-thirds of the life claims that they've had during COVID have been healthcare workers, which of course is far, far greater than the proportion of healthcare workers who they are insured. How does it feel going to work in this kind of environment? 
I think it's really a situation where you have to put your fear aside and you have to understand that you have that responsibility. This is your job and this is what you chose to do. But at the same time, you do have that fear, you have that uncertainty. We've been very fortunate in our hospital group to have excellent PPE available. This has been really reassuring for the staff. And what about yourself? Have you been exposed to COVID-19? Yes, I had the experience of having the virus myself. And I was very lucky that my oxygen percentage did drop, but I was able to stay at home. I had good support from my family and my friends. And at the time, really, you just feel like a heaviness on your chest. And it's, in a sense, helped me to also, you know, come back to work and the staff see I'm back at work. I've come through it. I'm okay. The fatigue you sort of had to fight through. And it's a miserable virus. You know, we just don't like it. We want it to go away now. We've had enough. But luckily, again, you need to set that example that you could come back to work and you could continue working. And the nurses themselves, how have they reacted to your guard of honor? They loved it. Some were a little bit embarrassed. They didn't quite understand what this was all about. The ones that I've spoken to have really, and many have come to thank us for having taken this and to make them feel special. You know, I think it's it's really just to recognize the absolute amazing contribution they've made. It's a unique profession, nursing. These are often people, they may be single parents, they have long hours, they often travel to work in the dark, especially in wintertime. It's been quite extraordinary that South Africa's mortality rate from COVID-19 is so much lower than elsewhere in the world. What do you put that down to? I think we had the benefit that we did have an opportunity to learn from the international experience. You know, we could sort of see what worked, what didn't work. Should you use this? Should you use that? You know, this works. We've had education from the international community on how to ventilate patients, who to ventilate, what ventilatory support to use, what medications do work, what don't. We've learned about diabetes being a challenge, obesity. Male patients have been at risk specifically. So I think we had that advantage. Secondly, we actually have an excellent academic community in South Africa. And we also communicated with one another. What is your experience? What worked for you? Okay, this worked for me. Okay, and share that clinical experience to be able to say, this is the way that we can really fight this virus. I think also importantly is that the lockdown did help. I do think, though, that looking at the economic situation and the job losses, that even though the lockdown helped, it is now starting to be the negative side where it's really affecting people very badly. So it's maybe a situation where you're going to have to accept some people are not going to make it. The awareness that this can make a difference, your hand sanitizer, this really does make a difference. And the mask wearing, as painful and as irritating as it is, can save your life. And I think that is important. And most important, what I say to people, everybody around you is positive. I don't care what they look like. I don't know who they are. You've got to take that everybody around you, including your family, may be positive. And that's how you really have to have that attitude that you have to protect not yourself, but everybody around you as well. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. A company that's been doing some research into how business has been handling the lockdown. Before we get into that, Natalie, enlighten, interesting name, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, our business is really all about insights around customer experience, deeper insights than just tick boxes. So we do a lot of voice of customer research, specifically in the B2B space. And we do strategy around customer experience. We do customer journey mapping. So really a holistic look at how do companies improve the end-to-end client experience. And how did you do this research that we're going to discuss in a moment? So we do annual research across businesses, from small to medium businesses to large corporates. We've got a database of about 5,000 CEOs and senior level execs. So what were the conclusions? Well, so the conclusions were that a lot of businesses were struggling to adapt in terms of the changing customer behavior. More than 80% of respondents said they'd experienced massive disruption to their businesses and supply chains. And half reported that adapting to changing customer behavior has not been easy. And that 77% of the respondents agreed that their company needs to be more flexible and obviously more agile. Did they give you any examples or any instances of how they have adjusted, particularly the small, more agile ones? A lot of them have because, well, they have to do what they have to do. A lot of businesses have rearranged how they service or how they deliver to their customers at big costs. So they're basically keeping their heads above water at the moment because obviously with all the COVID protocols and they need to create more opportunities for staff, it has obviously had an impact in terms of their profitability. Well, when you talk about so many businesses, 80% of the businesses finding that it's been pretty tough, what have they been doing, and I think specifically here in the digital space, to get themselves ready for what looks like a very different world coming out of the pandemic? So we split businesses in terms of business to business, then there's business to customer, and then there's B to B to C. So with the B to C businesses, They've been able to be a lot more agile in terms of serving customers. Do you think there's going to be pent-up demand for those kind of interactions once we are allowed to do them again? I think that people will be slow to do that again. I mean, if I look at our business, we've certainly had to go more online in terms of the training that we deliver If there was an issue with the client or client needed some help, I would jump on a plane or one of my staff would jump on a plane. We're not going to do that so quickly anymore. We're becoming used to the virtual environment. However, I think it is to the detriment of relationships. So what are you advising the clients of yours who have commissioned this research? It's critical at this point to really stay close to your customer and give them opportunities to reach out to you, whichever environment you're in, whether it's B2B or B2C or B2B2C. If they have an issue, make sure that you're available to listen. So don't let them take to social media because that's really easy to do. Is that message getting through that you better buck up because it is quite a lot more demanding from a customer service perspective? I think that there is a realization, and when I look at the results of the research that we've done, and remembering these are decision makers, so they realize that CX or client experience is top of the agenda in terms of strategy, but what they actually do about it is a different thing. Business is going to be tough for a really long time. This is not going to go away anytime soon. Business is going to take a long time to recover. 
businesses are a lot hungrier and it's really survival of the fittest. And I see lots of small businesses popping up that are agile and hungry that are going to give big business a little bit of a run for their money. If you were to be advising someone who's in an industry which is really in trouble, like a restaurateur, how would you advise them? Well, from a restaurant perspective, people are lazy. They want their lives to be made easier. So it's about being able to package your product that it's easy for them to either collect or preferably deliver. So there are a lot of restaurants that have changed their model, some more successfully than others. The tourism sector in South Africa is going to have to rely on fellow South Africans for the months to come. And certainly, I think December, January season, we won't be seeing any overseas people. So they're going to have to adjust their prices to realize that I think all South Africans are pretty weather beaten. So they're going to have to trim their prices and realize that it's something that we have to ride out together. But there are always opportunities. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The Tourism Business Council of South Africa has urged the government to reopen the sector as businesses are suffering and an estimated 300,000 jobs have been lost. Chief Executive Officer of the Council, Chifiwa Chivengwa, told Linda van Tilburg that the situation in the leisure industry is desperate and said he believes that the industry is able to ensure the necessary safety protocols so it should reopen fast. You know, the economic impact of tourism to the economy is going to take a huge, huge now. You know, now contribute 8.6%. You know, if I were to look at what's going on and if we don't get international markets coming back, this could go as low as 4% in my own estimation. Although it's not scientific, but I'm looking at it from how companies are resizing. Many companies, the big ones, reducing their staff by 50%. Some of them up to 80%. Everyone is looking at it and saying, well, if I'm a car rental, you know, I used to have 30,000 cars. I only need 6,000 cars. That's a decimation of the industry. At the moment, it's, you're really looking at, you know, 50% of the industry taken away. And we have to rebuild from the, from the other 50% that will be left. And the sad thing is that, you know, majority of these companies that are going to be decimated are independently owned. They are small businesses. Some of them are family owned for many, many generations. And now they are facing permanent closure. So you're really looking at a situation that's very dire. You're looking at at least so far 300,000 staff that are being uh, retrenched. If, if situation doesn't change, we're going to have to see even more coming off the payroll in the coming months. So it, it's a dire situation. And I think that uh, companies have, have been waiting for quite some time, even the listed companies. At some point, there's nothing you know, more to wait for. It's desperate. And uh, we're hoping that now you know, the, the easing that government has introduced is going to you know, give hope Although people are still not allowed to travel from province to province, but can travel within their own province, at least it will give hope. Although, you know, we want people to be able to travel across provinces, especially coming from province of Gauteng. If you look at Kruger, for example, the majority of visitors of, that go to Kruger, probably 80%, if not 90, are coming from Gauteng, so they can't travel there. So as much as Kruger is going to open, it's as much as there won't be traffic going that way.
So that's another issue that we ought to deal with, and we have to convince government to allow people to at least move from the province, as I've said. Now, we need to open for people to travel across South Africa freely as soon as possible. I know that there has been a date of September to say, you know, uh, domestic must be fully open in September. You know, it, it would be great if we can do it earlier because it will sustain even the, the very same state-owned parks uh, in addition to, you know, the private sector businesses. So I understand it when they say it, but for me, it's something that we should have been doing already now, you know, for domestic travel. It should have been fully open. We believe we can do it safely. There are protocols in place. We are already doing it for business travel and essential travelers. Why can't we open leisure? Besides, a lot of people don't even have disposable income because of these job losses that we're seeing across all sectors. You will always have a smaller group of people, yeah, a core group of people who, who are travelers, who will be traveling. So by a sheer fact of people not having income, you will have fewer people, you know, traveling, fewer people in their cars, fewer people staying at accommodation. So already, you know, you're having small demand. We, we saw this with business travel. Airlines are operating at 6%. So already, you don't have much demand. People are not moving as they used to do, and I don't believe that they're going to go back immediately. But those that can move, those that are able to travel, why can't we allow them to travel? Why can't we allow them to move freely? Why can't we allow them to choose where they would want to go? And that's what we've been advocating. Let the, the very small group travel so that they can you know, help us preserve the jobs within our sector. Well, and if we're talking about international travel, I see the Deputy Minister Fish Mashtalele talked about next year. The industry won't survive until next year, will they? No, there won't be anything left. And, and I've said this from the beginning of the lockdown to say, if we close this industry and we talk about next year, you know, you got to look at it from the business point of view. And people have to seek advice from the business people. I know that there are scenarios that says we don't know when the peak is going to end. We don't know when we're going to open. But we can't continue with a scenario where we are not giving international markets, you know, a certainty. Especially our core markets that we've been working with for many, many years. Why can't we give them certainty and say we're going to open in October or in September? So, so for us, you know, what we would love to see is the opening of international travel by September, which is already too late because we should have announced that a long time ago that it will be opening. And if, if the government aims to open up in, in October, we'd rather say it now so that the airlines can start to, you know, to load, you know, uh, you know, onto the systems, the availabilities and so forth and so on. This has been episode 69 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or the app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.